Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. Now, the last few weeks, we've been going through the life of Joseph. How it's been such a roller coaster ride for him, and, and a, a lot of it has been so much of affliction. Well, on the one side, he is the beloved son of his father, and yet he is hated by his brothers. And he's then sold as a slave as a result of that hatred. And then he comes into Egypt, into Potiphar's house. And while he's raised up as the right hand of Potiphar in his house, he's then falsely accused by Potiphar's wife and he's thrown in prison. And even in prison, while he's there for quite a few years, he remains faithful to the Lord. And again, he is raised up to be the head of all the other prisoners. And we saw last week of how then the king's officials came into prison and how he interpreted those dreams to them. And despite everything going well, especially for the cupbearer, He is forgotten. And after this time of affliction, now Joseph's life turns a corner. And this passage really begins to unfold God's promises specific to Joseph. Really, in this chapter, we see how God's plan is moving forward. And it's a chapter that shows how God brings all things about to save his people. And there's even a sense in which what happens in this chapter points to something greater that God will do one day. This morning we're going to look at how God exalts Joseph in Egypt. And as we look at that in this chapter, we'll look at that under two headings. First, we'll see how God establishes the need for deliverance in verses 1 through 33. And then in verses 34 all the way to 57, we'll see then how God establishes his unexpected deliverer. So firstly, how God establishes the need for deliverance. Verse 1, it reads, After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second dream. 
And behold, seven years of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven years, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin years swallowed up the seven plump full years. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. So let's just stop there for a moment. So two years have passed now since the incident that Joseph had, particularly with the cupbearer and the baker, and where the cupbearer is restored to his office as a cupbearer, and then Joseph is totally forgotten. Another two years have passed, and Joseph continues to remain in prison. And now, after two years, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, has two dreams. And Pharaoh's dream is this that seven healthy-looking plump cows, they come out of the river Nile and they feed on the grass that's on the banks of the river Nile. And then a set of ugly, gaunt, sickly-looking cows come out, and instead of those cows feeding on the grass, they come and devour the healthy cows. And then Pharaoh has a second dream. And this time, there's a stock of grain with, with seven years or, or heads of grain growing on it. And then another stock comes up with seven grains, and it's blighted by the harsh desert wind, the east wind. And then this thin, blighted, these thin, blighted grain heads, they swallow up the plump, healthy grain heads. You know, the River Nile was considered to be the primary source of Egypt's existence. In fact, the Nile, the cow, the grain were all symbols of gods that the Egyptians worshipped. In fact, that's why when you look at the book of Exodus, that God sends the plague against these very elements to show Egypt who is the true and living God. So Pharaoh is very troubled by all this, these, these things that are symbolic of even the gods of Egypt. And he calls for all the professional dream interpreters, the, the magicians and the wise men in Egypt. And then even with the combined expertise of all these wise men, Pharaoh's dreams could not be interpreted. Just a side note here. Now these magicians, dream interpreters, they're the same class of people that we see in the New Testament come visit baby Jesus and are referred to as the magi. See, those who interpret the stars and the dreams and the wise men, it's the same class of people that are here. Same class of people that you see with Daniel as well in Nebuchadnezzar's court. So now seeing Pharaoh is so distressed and none of the wise men can interpret these dreams for Pharaoh, the cupbearer now remembers, oh, there's this 
Hebrew named Joseph. And he tells him about Joseph and how Joseph had helped him. Look at verses 9 through 13. Then the cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard and we dreamed on the same night. He and I each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. And when we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Verse 14, Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. See, the Hebrews at the time, they often grew a beard. But the Egyptians, on the other hand, were all clean-shaven. You know, they would never have beards. They wouldn't even have hair on their heads. So this kind of look would not be allowed in Egypt at that time, or at least to be associated with the Egyptians. So Joseph is all cleaned up, all fully clean, shaven, and he's got a clean set of clothes and probably looks like an Egyptian right now, and he appears before Pharaoh. Now verse 15. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream and there is none who can interpret it. I have, said, I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. You know, this is Joseph's moment to shine. You know, Pharaoh has called him and he's, Pharaoh is desperate for someone to interpret his dreams. You know, Joseph could, and, and he's saying, I hear, Joseph, that you are the man of the hour, that you can interpret dreams. Would you help me? You know, Joseph could have easily said, well, Pharaoh, yeah, yeah, I can certainly help you, but there are some conditions. Well, for starters, my freedom. But that's not how Joseph responds. Notice how he responds. Verse 16. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. You know, the language is emphatic. It's, it's more literally not me. It's actually a single word in the Hebrew where he just emphatically says, No, Pharaoh, not me. It's God. You know, this is not some kind of false humility on, you know, Joseph's part where he's saying, oh, it's not me, it's God, you know, where sometimes people can do that. And I know I, I, there are times I find myself doing the same as well, where it's not me, it's God, but on the inside thinking, oh, I deserve this kind of praise and I deserve this kind of recognition. No, that's not what's happening with Joseph here. Joseph is essentially saying, no, Pharaoh, I don't have any innate magical powers to interpret dreams or to even make those dreams come true. It's God's work. 
And as he works through me, he may give me the right interpretation and give that answer to your dream. So Joseph doesn't try to toot his own horn, but he points back to God in front of Pharaoh. Now in verses 17 through 24, Pharaoh now rehashes what he's seen in his dream. But you get a sense of Pharaoh's dread of these dreams as he describes it to Joseph. Now I won't read the whole thing because Pharaoh is just repeating himself, but notice what he says in verse 19. After he says the healthy cows are come, verse 19, seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I've never seen in all the land of Egypt. And then in verse 21, where he says, and when they had eaten the plump cows, no one would have known that they'd eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. And then I awoke. You know, you can almost imagine... Just, just imagine with me, you know, perhaps you've seen, if not watched horror movies, uh, at least seen some clips of it, so you can imagine. You know, these gaunt, really scary looking cows. You know, almost ghostly looking, just almost skeleton-like. Very scary, gaunt looking cows coming up and eating these healthy looking cows. So you can understand why Pharaoh is so troubled because he, you know, he gets the sense that something bad is going to happen. Now Joseph gives the interpretation to the dream. Verse 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good years, or the grain heads, are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty years blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of the dreams means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. So Joseph says this, First, Pharaoh, you will have seven years of plenty, symbolized by the healthy cows and the seven healthy grain heads that you saw on that stock. This will be followed by seven years of famine, symbolized by the gaunt, scary cows and the blighted grain swallowing up that which was healthy. And the famine will be so severe that the previous seven years of plenty will be forgotten. I want you to understand what's happening here. 
in Pharaoh's court as Joseph is saying all this to Pharaoh. Pharaoh is the ruler of the most powerful nation of the world at this time. But Joseph, on the other hand, he's a foreigner, a Hebrew, and a Hebrew slave at that. And if that's not all, he's a Hebrew slave that has been thrown into the Egyptian prison for a number of years. See, you can't get any lower than where Joseph is right now in Egyptian society at that time. And yet, when this Hebrew slave prisoner comes before the mighty ruler of the most powerful nation at the time, all he keeps doing is pointing back to God. Notice again, verse 16. It is not in me, God will give the answer to your dream. Verse 25. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do in your dreams. Same thing again in verse 28. God has shown Pharaoh what he's about to do. And then verse 32. These things revealed in the dreams are fixed by God. It is made certain by God and God will bring it about soon. See, Joseph, by continuing to point to the true and living God, Joseph is essentially saying, you see the wise men of Egypt and the gods of Egypt, they're nothing. They can't do anything, Pharaoh. My God, he is the true and living God. He rules the heavens and the earth. He alone brings the crops and the famine and the plenty and the want. He alone controls the course of this entire universe and human history. And whatever he has purposed will come to pass and no one can stand in his way. It is God who does it all. Now if I were to ask you, why did God send Pharaoh these dreams? Well, you could say this. That at just the perfect time, in God's perfect time, God sent these dreams to Pharaoh for Joseph to be there at just the perfect time so that Pharaoh and the rest of Egypt would understand their desperate plight. And then on top of that, it is so that then Joseph would be raised up according to the promise of God to Joseph and really would save all of Egypt and his family and the rest of the world. And so through the dreams, through the famine, through the plenty, through raising of Joseph and the saving of people, what is God doing? He's proclaiming his name among the peoples. This is who I am. Why did God send Pharaoh the dreams? 
Well, in another sense, I would say, because God had told Abraham that his descendants would go to Egypt and be enslaved for 400 years. Why? So that after 400 years, he would take these bunch of slaves and make them into a nation of God, a nation that belongs to God, so that his glory, his power would be made known to all the world. So that then he would save his people and care for his people and bring them back to the promised land, the land of Canaan, and at the same time, bring judgment on the Canaanites. Why? Because at that point, the Canaanites would have become so wicked that the wickedness would have reached such a level that it would be right and just for God to destroy the Canaanites at that time. And ultimately, God is doing all this whereby then he would use the nation of Israel to be a blessing to the nations whereby finally Jesus himself will come from the descendants of Abraham and would be a blessing to the world and bring salvation to the world. God is working all that out. He's bringing about his specific promises to Joseph. He's bringing about his promises to Abraham. He's bringing about the, the greater promise to even Adam and Eve to bring the one who would crush the head of the serpent. He's doing all that. And that plan begins to unfold his plan to save his people in the dream of a pagan king. This is God's work. You know, I love what what Joseph said. And I think it should be the posture of every Christian. It's not in me, but it's in God. See, no matter what circumstance as Christians we face, if we understand that truth, it is not in me, but in God, it will give us so much of joy and freedom as we live in this world. I mean, let's think of a few scenarios, right? You've, You've got a difficult relational problem or you've let's say in your workplace you've got difficulties with your boss and you've tried in your own way to do things but things are just not going well brother sister i want to encourage you to think of this it is not in me but god can What about, you know, if you have a spouse and, and, and you're seeing just difficulties and things like that and you're hoping things will change, but you can't change your spouse's heart. Or maybe with your children, you can't change your children's heart. 
we would do well in those situations. It's not in me, but God. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't do anything at all. I mean, Joseph certainly is going to interpret the dream knowing fully well that it is God who is ultimately working. So he's going to be faithful to God. He will do what he needs to do. He's not negating his responsibility. And so we too then need to be responsible where we show Christ-like love to the other person. Maybe minister the word of God to that other person or care for that other person or interact with that person in a certain way. But in all that, not thinking, oh, because I have done these things, definitely I will change this person. Oh, I will change the situation. No, it is not in me, but God. What about a loved one that you've been praying for? Who is not saved? You know, we share the gospel with them. And they outright reject it. Do we beat ourselves or do everything possible to manipulate somehow and to convince that person? No, we cannot change that person. And there's a certain freedom that we have in knowing it is not in me. Lord, help me to be faithful to you and do all that I need to do. But it is not in me, but in God. It'll make a world of a difference when we understand that. That it is all of God's doing. It is God who brings about circumstances. He's working out His will. It's God who holds the hearts of people in His hands. It is God who can open hearts and close hearts. It is God who can change situations. It is not our our extraordinary skill or anything of that sort. And really here, God by His grace through Joseph is making the people around him see their need for deliverance. It's not because of Joseph's smart, but God is bringing this about. And that brings us to our second point. God establishes his unexpected deliverer. Verses 34 to 57. Now you can imagine how, how desperate and concerned Pharaoh would have been after he heard the interpretation of the dreams. I mean, they didn't have all the scientific and agricultural advances that we have now. Seven years of severe famine, so severe that the seven years of plenty would almost be forgotten. That would mean in those days that many, 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 many people would die. And what is Pharaoh supposed to do? See, Joseph not only interprets the dream, but he also provides counsel on what steps to be taken with the coming famine. Listen to what Joseph says, verse 34 onwards. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land. 
and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. So Joseph says, appoint people who can supervise the land and take one-fifth of the produce. Or in other words, increase the tax by 20% during the seven years of plenty. And, the store and store the grains that you get from the tax in the storehouses in the various cities as, as depots of storage in various cities in Egypt. Why? So that during the severe famine, People won't die and they will still have food. See, what you see here is Joseph is genuinely concerned for the people of Egypt. And he's wisely giving counsel on how to help them and save them. I mean, he doesn't know if it's going to impact his family or not. But let me ask you this. How did Joseph become so wise? Well, God made him wise. Because God had been training Joseph all these years in the school of affliction. And Joseph had grown in his fear and reverence for God. And as the Bible says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And so even practically, as Joseph sought to honor the Lord during his afflictions, you saw how God provided various responsibilities. God enabled him to have different responsibilities over the years in Potiphar's house, and even in prison. And so he's learning to serve others and have wisdom and skill to, to bless others. God has matured him and made him wise. And part of Joseph growing in his love for the Lord translates to Joseph in any situation, wanting to represent God in that situation and then wanting to seek to bless others. And he's so grown in that and matured in that. Again, for those of us who are believers and have any kind of influence, you know, whether as a spouse, as a parent, as a student, as a worker, or even in the church having some kind of responsibility, here's an important principle to keep in mind. I know I've, I've talked about this a long while back, but I want to bring it up again. Turn to 2 Samuel 23, 3 and 4. These are the last words of King David. And this is what he says. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, The one who rules justly over men, 
ruling in the fear of God. So somebody who has reverence for God, has a fear of God, and has a sphere of influence. How is that person meant to be? Verse 4. He dawns on them like the morning light. Like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning. Like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. In other words, if God has given you some kind of influence or leadership, it is so that those under your influence will blossom like rain which makes the grass sprout, like the beautiful sun shining in a cloudless morning. The position of influence or leadership that God gives is never to be used for our own benefit. It is never to be used to crush those under us. But it is to be used solely to bless those under us and to do good to those under us so that they will blossom and flourish. And that is exactly what Joseph is doing. Because he fears God and that translates in him wanting to do what is good for others rather than seek to make a great name for himself. So now, after Joseph has said this, look at what happens, verse 37. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning as, and wise as you are. Now this is not to say that Pharaoh somehow, you know, being a pagan, polytheistic person, somehow now became a believer in Yahweh, the God of Joseph. Because the term God, or Elohim, it's a plural word. So it can be used to talk about false gods in the plural, or it can be used to talk about the one true living God, but he's a plural God. The same term is used, Elohim. So Pharaoh is saying, Joseph, your wisdom and discernment, that, that is very different from others around me. This is supernatural. This is not something inherent that you possess. Pharaoh is saying, this is wisdom from above that is on display. You know, and I love this because Pharaoh doesn't believe in Yahweh, but even in his ignorance, what is he doing? He's giving praise to God. He's marveling at the wisdom coming out through Joseph. That's the God of the Bible. So now what does Pharaoh do? Verse 40. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. 
Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Sephaneth Paneah, and he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Let's just stop there. See, Pharaoh not only releases Joseph from prison, but seeing the wisdom that is shining through Joseph, really the wisdom of God, he changes Joseph's status and promotes him just overnight from slave to second in command in all of Egypt. He gives Joseph all the power, including his signet ring. Do you know what that means? That's the king's signature. He holds the king's signature. He gives him all the power. He gives him an Egyptian name. And he even gives him an Egyptian wife from a very high status. Now, I don't know whether Joseph's wife was a believer or not. Scripture is silent about that. But if there is any concern that, about Joseph remaining faithful to the Lord with all this change of status and him coming to power in Egypt, we will see that Joseph actually, by the grace of God, continues to remain faithful to the Lord. Joseph, a Hebrew slave who has been a prisoner in Egypt for so many years, is the most unexpected person to come to rise to power in Egypt and one who will actually save the people. I mean, nobody would have looked at this Hebrew slave who's been a prisoner in Egypt's, Egypt's dungeons for so long and say, oh, you're going to be great one day and you're going to save us all. Nobody would ever believe that. But that is exactly what God has planned. First Corinthians, often, you know, this is how God works. 1 Corinthians 1 tells us God chooses the foolish things, the weak things, to shame the wise and the strong of this world. Why? So that no man may boast. And that's exactly what is happening with Joseph. Now verse 46. It says, Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Remember, 17, he was sold as a slave to Egypt. 13 years have passed. So Joseph is 30 when he enters Pharaoh's service, and he went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. 
And he put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. So during the seven years of plenty, Joseph stores up grain in much abundance, so much so that they can't even count the number of uh, stored up grain. And during this time, this seven years of plenty, Joseph also has two sons. And the names he gives them are two Hebrew names. And it points to the fact that, again, Joseph, despite his status and you know, all this plentiful thing happening, Joseph is continuing to be faithful to the Lord. Verse 50. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. See, Joseph, by naming his son Manasseh, he's saying, I'm not bitter. I'm not angry at all the affliction that came my way, whether it's from my father's house or the time that I was here. But I'm trusting in God's good and wise providence. God has made me forget it all and forgive everyone and live trusting in his good and wise providence. And then he has a second child, verse 52. The name of the second he called Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Notice he's saying, Egypt, these 13 years I've been here, is not my homeland. It's the land of my affliction. But still, God has made me fruitful in every way, even in this land of affliction. Now look at what happens after seven years of plenty. Verse 53 to 57. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end. And the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. See what's happening here? God had promised Abraham, in you, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And so, God now has raised up this most unexpected deliverer, Joseph, so that the world would be saved. 
so that at this time all who went to Joseph during this famine would be saved. And this was all God's doing. I mean, what a wonderful thing to see how God has changed things in Joseph's life and prisoner to essentially a prince of Egypt. He has made him in just a day. Now let me ask you this. So does this mean that all of God's people who experience suffering will be raised up like Joseph in this world? I like how one commentator answered this question and let me just quote him. He says, quote, Not all of the misery experienced by Christ's people will be a stepping stone to earthly glory as it was for Joseph. Some will die a martyr's death, as did Stephen, Paul, and Peter. Others will live lives in earthly obscurity, though their faith and works are surely known to God. Yet, Joseph's story ultimately also demonstrates to all of his children that there is a glorious future stored up for them as God has promised. Faithful believers will find their ultimate hope not in the earthly rewards, but in the goal of God's work in Joseph's life that preserved the people of Israel, the bringing forth of a Savior to bless people from all nations. End quote. God is the one who established this unexpected deliverer. I just want you to just briefly think of Joseph's life and tell me if it reminds you of anyone else. Joseph the beloved son of his father, betrayed by his brothers, sold by silver, thrown in a pit, forgotten and left for dead, and then raised out of the pit. A man who who entered into public ministry, so to speak, at age 30, and where people around him recognized the Spirit of God was on him. A most unexpected man by human standards, but then finally raised by God to the most exalted position, where God uses this man to save the people of the earth. And really, even to say, this is also preparing for the Exodus, isn't it? Where then God will take his people and bring them back to the promised land. Do you hear an echo? Do you hear an echo? Yeah, it's that great deliverer 
that God one day would send. Jesus Christ, the beloved Son of God, one who came to his own, but they did not know him, and he was betrayed by them. Sold by silver, and left for dead, and thrown into the pit of the grave. And yet God raised him out from the pit and exalted him to the right hand of glory. And it is through Christ and through Christ alone where God is now saving his people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And really, it's also the fact that in a spiritual sense to, as you know, the New Testament points to, we are in this exodus as pilgrims going in this wilderness journey till we'll be taken back to the promised land. Yeah, ultimately what God has done here, the salvation that he's bringing about in this point in history is pointing to a greater salvation and a greater deliverer that will come one day. Friend, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, I want to tell you what is God's revelation. There is only one true living God. The God who created the heavens and the earth and everything in it. And he rules over all of it. And man being his creation is also one who should submit to his rule. And yet man rebelled against God and sinned against God. And as a result, all of us, apart from Christ, stand guilty before this great and holy creator. But God has also revealed the way for you to be right with God. And it is his way. Remember, it is his world, his plans, his purposes that are working out. And it is that he sent his beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come into this world. To be crucified and to be buried, to be treated as the worst criminal, to be treated as the scum of this world. So that he would come and bear the judgment for the sin of his people. And then he rose from the dead, proving that he is indeed the Son of God. He is indeed the one who can offer forgiveness of sins and right standing with God. Friend, I want to tell you, based on God's revelation, it is not seven years of severe famine that's coming. 
It is an eternity of God's just wrath that is coming. And I want you to understand that this is a grace from God. Just like it was a grace from God to reveal to Pharaoh of the desperate need to be delivered. This is a grace from God where he tells you what is coming in future. That for all those who do not go to Jesus and trust in him as the only way of salvation, as the only way by which one can be made right with God, will suffer eternal condemnation under the just wrath of God. So friend, I... I plead with you today. I do not tell you to run to Joseph or to go to Joseph, but to go to Christ, to come to Christ and see him for who he is, the ultimate deliverer, the ultimate savior. And if you see him for who he is, and if you truly believe in him and you say, I do believe, then I say, turn from your sin. Turn from living from yourself. Turn from living for, to exalt your name. And turn to him and make much of him and trust him and follow after him. Because that is the evidence that you have truly trusted him. But for those of us who are believers... How should we respond to a text like this? Well, for us to understand and marvel at the wisdom of God and the ways of God. How he plans and works out things and how he changes hearts of people, how at just the right time he's orchestrating things whereby he's doing all things for his glory and for the good of his people. And where we wouldn't see Joseph and put uh, everything in Joseph, but we would see the greater deliverer, Jesus, and find our everything in him, find our rest in him, our joy in him, our righteousness in him, our hope in him. And trusting in this great deliverer that we would live all the days of our lives on this earth to make much of him and say, not me, but Christ in Christ alone. Let's pray together. Father, we recognize that you are a God we cannot fully comprehend. Your ways are not our ways. Your perfect time is not according to our time. Yet we know that you work all things for the good of your people and ultimately to proclaim your glory and your name in all the earth. Lord, we thank you for the privilege that it is ours to be called your children. And we pray that as we understand you more and more, both the mystery of the being that you are, and yet your kind revelation to us of who you are and how you work, help us to trust you, to trust your character, to trust your word as we go through the ups and downs of life so that as you refine us, as you change us, we would say, not me, 
but Christ and Christ alone. To him be all the glory and his name we pray. Amen.